All right. I want to take you back into the back into the Sermon on the Mount tonight. We've been doing the Sermon on the Mount for several months now and working, I think, I think Brian said 19 sermons in. I haven't been keeping track. That sounds about right. Um, that's a considerable amount for three chapters of the Bible, I know. Uh, we've been bouncing all over the place. Tonight we want to return to the Beatitudes for one of the Beatitudes that we left. And I want to... I'm going to do it a little differently tonight in that I, I want to read it first. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of Greek first, and then I'm going to talk about this for a second and tell you why we put this off. Because if, if, if you were going chronologically, we should have preached this a long time ago. This is early in the Beatitudes. So this is your text from Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Very simple. And of course, our, our title tonight is Blessed are those who mourn. Let me give you the Greek of this just as a good, la- a good launching spot tonight. Mourn in the Greek is the word pentheo, which means to lament. And particularly to lament the dead. And that's why in the Western world, we've taken the word mourn and we've attached it almost primarily to losing a loved one. So when someone is in mourning, that means they've lost someone dear to them. And then we even started to sort of color coordinate in mourning and where you wear black or you wear a black armband or you put black drapes in some cultures, especially back in the Victorian era, everything was doused in black as is this idea that you were mourning those who had died. Um, but in its other Greek counterparts, the word denotes to sing a lament or even to wail. So in every instance, be it English, Old English, Modern English, or Old Greek, it has something very vocal. There's something that comes from deep inside out. That's to mourn. You can't mourn quietly. In other words, at least, I mean, metaphorically you could, I I suppose, but in a literal sense, someone's going to hear and someone's going to know about the mourning. So before we move forward, and there's more that I want to give you on this screen and and some things I want to talk about in relation to mourning, I want to start with because um, I try to do this every week, is really just spend some time with the Father and say, where do we kind of pick this thing up tonight? Because we're just jumping in. We're always at random moving into this sermon. And how do you collect your thoughts and rework? And I don't like to do reviews for 20 minutes every week and re-preach the structure of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And so I'm going to just assume you've got that, or at least you're working with that or you're wrestling with that, and that maybe you wonder why I jump past some of these. And I have told you that I wait every week to see my little illustration is which flag goes up the flagpole first. You know, you got all these topics and which flag stays up high and kind of waves in my spirits. The one I land on every week ago, that's the verse. That's the story this week. Um, and so that, this was a combination of that. But I avoided it initially um, for a very simple reason. Um, I think that you need to have some sort of connection to a text. I don't mean you got to have it mastered. You don't have to have it down. If we waited until we had text mastered, we wouldn't preach anything. If we waited until we had it down, we might just wrestle with it, but we wouldn't really do much with it. Scripture is supposed to challenge us, all of us. It's not supposed to be something we use to win debates. Scripture is not something you use on a whetstone and sharpen like a dagger, and then you pull it out when you need it in a fight. And so now you got your verse that can overcome their verse. And now we get to see who the best Bible student is because whoever's got the sharpest wit slash scripture wins the argument. I, Jesus had no interest in it. Um, and, and I don't see the early church having an interest in it. So I don't, I don't ask you to approach the Bible that way. I hope you don't. Um, and you don't have to conquer it. The Bible's not about cracking the scriptures open to figure out who's right and who's wrong. Um, It is this ongoing conversation that you walked into the middle of. 
The Bible's been here for 2,000 years and people have been preaching it and teaching it and talking about it and expositing it and exegeting its knowledge and working through various hermeneutics and various cultures. And you happen to walk into a room in the middle of a long-going conversation. That's what happens when you crack the Bible open. Like that scene in Amadeus uh, where Salieri opens the music folder of Mozart and with every page there's the different song and he turns the page and the song changes and he turns the page and the song changes. And it's, I just thought that was such a cool scene. And it's all playing in his head. And the Bible is that way in some ways. You crack open Matthew 5, boom, there's Jesus having a conversation on the Sermon on the Mount. But everything you encounter through commentaries and sermons and songs are other people's voices in regards to that sermon saying, here's what he means, here's what he means, here's what he means. And then who are we to come along 2,000 years later and go, hey, let me tell you what that verse means. And you got it all figured out. You don't need anybody else's conversation because I've landed on truth. Um, I don't, can't approach the Bible that way. But you do have to have something in it that kind of rises up in you. And I don't have that with blessed are those who mourn. And the reason I don't have that is because I haven't, using the classic definition of this, which is mourn, to truly mourn those who die, I haven't had it. Um, I haven't lost anybody. And I've had, I really come to grips with that a few months ago. Like I had never really thought about it. And I haven't lost a parent. I haven't lost a, a, a spouse. I haven't lost a kid. I haven't lost a sibling. I have one grandparent left, but I wasn't close. One of them I never met. The other two I wasn't really close to growing up. Um, I haven't had that, that heart-rending loss. Um, now, I, I don't believe I got a knock on wood like, ooh, the, you know, something bad's coming because you spoke that into the atmosphere. Um, the reality is, is I realize that there will be pain. There will be the pain of loss. But here's the greater reality um, is that I know some of you have. Um, and I know that countless thousands of our viewers and our listeners have unimaginable loss. Not, not simply that they have had something to cry about, but that they've had something to cripple them over. Something to keep them from being able to swing their feet out of the bed and get up and go to work or school or life. Um, and I am not non-sympathetic to that. In fact, I'm so sympathetic to it that I didn't teach this lesson. Because I feel like there needs to be something you can sort of reach out and grab when you teach that. That, you, that somehow you identify with that. That you can, can say something from a place of, I know what you're going through. But then as the Holy Spirit began to deal with me, I thought, I, I'd come to another realization that sometimes the very worst thing you can say to somebody is, I know what you're going through. Because the reality is, is even if you've lost exactly the same equivalent to what they've lost, you didn't lose what they lost. It's okay, well, I lost my spouse. Yes, but you didn't lose their spouse. Well, I lost my kid. Yes, but you didn't lose their kid. And so as much as we want to say, I know what you're going through, we really don't ever know what anyone's going through. We don't know what people have attached to the things that they lose. And then we don't know the hole that it creates in their heart. And so what I've had to do in dealing with mourning is to come at it from either the loss of someone in my life related to someone that I love, whether it was when my wife lost her dad, uh, my father-in-law. Um, so I had to relate to that in a very immediate sense, way before his time. And so the tragedy of that, and so then you have to draw from someone else and what they're going through 
But at the same time, my own experience with mourning is really closer related to grief and sorrow that has less to do with losing people in the natural and more to do with the pain of being hurt. And then I had, have had to come to the very real realization, and this has required a lot of healing on my part, and healing is one of the things we're going to get into tonight because that's what we're really going for in this text, is that almost all of my pain internally in my life has been caused by the church. Almost all of it was either caused by a minister or caused by a ministry or caused by brothers and sisters or the church body at large. Um, I've been hurt far more by the church than I could have ever been hurt, I think, by the world or the systems of the world. And it's probably because that's where I spent my life, my formative years in the church. So any pains you're going to experience, you're going to experience through that lens. But I was raised in a pastor's home, pastor evangelist. So whatever gets done to pastors got done to us and got done in our house. And so my sources of pains, the only way that I can really even come close to relating was in that. And yet I'm up here tonight and I'm doing what I do. Um, and I'm not doing it necessarily in the traditional sense. Um, and that is, that is the result of some healing because at first there was a bit of a rebellion against the traditional sense that was sourced in my pain and sourced in my grief. And I've had to be healed of that as I go to say, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sometimes you just change the bathwater. You, you just have to figure out a better way to move forward in the midst of whatever your pain is. So I'm not going to be the guy that says, I know how you feel, because frankly, I don't have any idea how you feel in your hurt, whether it's physical loss or mental loss or an emotional tear. I don't know. But what we offer as ministers is not a, a shoulder to cry on. We're not your therapist. What we are is the proclamation that there can be something better, that he is alive, he is a healer, and he does understand where I don't understand. That's the great news the gospel provides, is that whatever pain you bring to the table, he is able. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's talking about people who have lost something, who've had their heart ripped out, who are in pain and who are suffering. And he says, they're blissful or they're blessed because they shall be comforted. So let's look at what that morning is a part of, and why comfort matters. Grief is internal. Mourning is the expression of that grief. There's really no way around it in the Greek that mourning is audible. Whether it's a song of lament, or whether it's the physical act of wailing, whether it's letting those emotions bubble up like a volcano until they explode in tears and screaming and crying, and wailing, whatever it might be, the mourning is the expression, but the mourning is not the pain. The mourning is the expression of the pain. The pain is the grief, and that is on the inside, and you don't see that. You see people mourn, but you don't see people in grief. The grief is something that sometimes we bottle up and we squeeze down, and we cram it sort of into the basement of our heart, and we don't deal with it, and it doesn't go away. By the way, nothing that you cram into the basement of your heart goes away, ever. How you were hurt, how you were wronged, how you were talked to, how you were treated. And you cram it down in there because it's way better to just cram it down in there than to let it go. And yet it 
just rots in there until it starts to kill things, until the, the stench of that pain becomes too great and then there is some sort of explosion. Most of what you see out of people who are exploding in some way violently or exploding some way in anger, most of it is sourced in some sort of grief that just got squashed and crushed and pushed down and ignored and lied about and, and laughed at until finally one day it just took over. Um, and, and there was that incident that snaps. And so the mourning that Jesus provides comfort for is just an expression of that. Grief is the pain we feel while mourning is the expression of that pain. And that expression can actually lead to healing because it's like the lancing of a boil. And once the thing comes out, no one wants to do that. You go, oh, no, 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 let's don't do that. Just leave it alone. But leaving it alone isn't the answer because getting it out is the answer. And only getting it out makes the difference. Ignoring it leaves it, letting it come out makes something happen. So in light of all of that pain, because that's all it is, Jesus has promised that blissful, you remember blessed are is blissful. That's the better word in the English. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, you're blessed if you mourn. He's saying, you're just darn downright happy. And you go, that doesn't make any sense at all, because how can you be downright happy in the midst of mourning? So his promise that blissful are those that mourn doesn't make any sense unless... The promise of comfort is way more than I'll just pat you on the back and give you a hug. If the promise of comfort is a promise of healing, then now we're getting somewhere. So blessed are those that mourn, they shall be comforted. If all you hear is, hey, if things aren't going well, Jesus just puts his great big old arm around you and goes, just weep it out. It'll get better. No one would be blissful over that. Hey, I'm going to come by so you can cry on my shoulder. And then you're all excited that someone's going to come by and cry on your shoulder. What you want is healed. What you want is something taken care of. Jesus' promise is way better than I'm going to give you a shoulder to cry on. So if Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted, then he becomes the source of the comfort. He becomes the thing that makes that. Remember, this is all, these are all statements of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like. Mourners get to enter the kingdom and find their comfort. In other words, mourners get to enter the kingdom and stop mourning. Not because when you get into God's house, he goes, hey, no crying here, kid. No, but when you get into God's house, he says, cry here, kid. Let it go. You're home. You're in a safe space. You can let all of this junk out because if you let it all go and then you let Jesus come in and do his work, then I can heal that emptiness, that pain, that, that crevice, that wound. This is why... Honestly, there's no excuse for people to not feel comfortable within the family of God. In the colony of believers, that, that colony of heaven we talked about, uh, the colony of heaven in a country of death, I love that Eugene Peterson statement. That's what we are and that's what we're doing in this room. And there's no reason anyone should ever feel uncomfortable in the colony of heaven because heaven welcomes the mourner. Because it doesn't tell them to leave their mourning in the parking lot. We don't have time for that kind of pain here. This is a shout fest. This is a favor house. We don't have time for your issues. We don't have time for your junk. No, that's what we're here for are your issues. We're here for the junk you've got to bring in and go, hey, you got to clean out the closet, man. This, this crap is holding me down and it's killing my family and I don't have any future. And if I don't, someone doesn't take it off my hands, it's going to destroy me. We're, we're better? The church. I know that doesn't even sound right, does it? No, because it's not the way we've encountered church, but we can do better because we are the church. And so the, be that place of release and how? Not because we've come up with the right song set, got the right minister, all the marketing is slick. 
but because we found Christ, that Jesus is at the center, and in Christ, great things happen. Now, what does it look like? Well, let's let Jesus do the talking, because he's going to do the healing. So if we listen, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. If we listen, that's where it starts, because there's always something to listen to. Yes, we got something to say, but we got something to listen to. Isaiah 61.1. You're going to know this immediately. Isaiah 61. I, I don't know how many times we've read this in this meeting or our monthly meetings, but it probably leads the way. Of every verse, all the verses we've ever read, we read this one over and over and over again. We either read it here or we read it in Luke where Jesus is reading it in the synagogue. We're going to read it from the Isaiah passage and we're going to go further than we normally do. So here's the part you know. Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor and sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stops right there because the next line is the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus was not here to declare the day of vengeance. Jesus in Luke 19 said the day of vengeance is when Jerusalem is suppressed about with armies. And that happened one generation after Jesus ascended, like he said it would. And when Jerusalem was ascended, surrounded with armies, the wrath side of God's love that had been spurned by temple Judaism showed, its, showed itself on the horizon of Jerusalem. And the day of the vengeance of our God happened. And so that vengeance is swallowed up. And then this line, which is actually the basis of part of the Beatitudes, to comfort all who mourn. So look at the things that Jesus was here to do. This stuff we're used to, proclaim liberty, opening prison doors, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But because he had to stop there, because he wasn't here to declare the day of vengeance, we missed out on a beautiful one, one that he did come to do and that he is still doing. And that's comfort the mourner. So when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted, who does the comforting? Jesus, bless, blissful is the mourner because he gets to meet me. I get to step into the middle of his mourning. I get to be the, the sunrise in the middle of his darkness so that I can bring comfort into the middle of the morning. And then we have a third verse that we rarely get to. To console those who mourn in Zion. Get, national, get geographical Zion out of your head. Cease with the literalism. And realize that we're dealing with a spiritual language. And Zion in spiritual language is the place God resides. And Zion is the place that the church resides in the book of Hebrews. You have come to Mount Zion, to the church of the firstborn. So where does the church sit? In a spiritual place called Zion. So what's happening in the church? He consoles people that are mourning in the church. So church, we're the, we're the house for the mourner. We're the place where wounds come to bleed out. Where people ought to feel comfortable being whatever they are. And that we love them and that we accept them. But that we don't just stop there and say, hey, welcome to the club. But we introduce the anointed Jesus. The crucified, resurrected, and ascended Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father and has finished the work. We let Him do the healing, not us do the healing. We let Him do the healing and we become agents of that healing. We're going to talk about how we become agents of that healing, but we let him do that work. And he gives these, look at the poetry of this. This is off the charts to give them beauty for ashes. That's the, the word beauty. There is a weird translation. I, I thought about using an alternate here just to get closer, but I figured I'd just quote it for you. Beauty is a, closer to the Hebrew word for garland. And so it's a, it's literally the Olympic victor crown. 
that they would give to those who won the contest. And he says, I'm going to actually crown you where you've been putting sackcloth and ashes on your head. That's the statement. Because in the ancient world, you would cover yourself in ash and lay on your face and pray so that you were lower than dirt. So you'd take dirt and throw it up on top of your body as you laid face down and prayed. And so that was to cover yourself in ash. And God prophesies of a man who is coming, Jesus, who is going to comfort those that mourn in Zion and give them a garland where they had only been covered up with dirt. So where they had tried to put themselves into the dirt of suicide and death, he's going to crown them as if they are a victor. Those who have been victimized will become victors as they encounter he who heals those who mourn. The oil of joy for mourning, we're going to just kind of circle that mentally because that's going to come back. The garment of praise. What a statement. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You trade in your heavy spirit. He gives you a garment that covers you over. That is the praise of his goodness. So that they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. You can't change a tree. It is what it is. If you plant an apple tree, you will not get oranges. You will only get apples. Where he plants you grow, accept the gift that comes out of you, use it for the good of heaven. Know that you are a tree. You didn't plant yourself. Who planted you? You feel really good about yourself because you found Jesus. Scratch that. He found you. He called you in. He wooed you. He brought you home. He planted you. So don't get so cocky as to think it's easy for you to get out. How are you going to get out? You're the planting of the Lord. You're a tree of His righteousness. We could be there all night. This is so good. What a passage. And Jesus quotes a part of that in his early days of his ministry. And, and it gets him in a lot of trouble because he refuses to segment it off to the people everybody wants it to be for. He lets everybody in on it. And the minute you let everybody in on the good thing, the people that don't think other people ought to be in on the good thing start slamming doors and building walls. And Jesus was one who knocked down walls and opened up doors and said, I'm the door. Any man tries to come in any other way is a thief and a robber. And, and just lays himself out there. So he's... He is our comfort, and He is familiar with our mourning. Where I'm going to drop the ball and being familiar with what pains you, Jesus is not going to drop the ball and being familiar with what pains you. Because the advent of Jesus becoming a man, this really struck me thinking about Easter in the last couple of weeks. I'm giving this away. This is just... Something I've been, I'm going to say Sunday, and I'm going to give it away tonight anyway, because I just want to say it. Um, there was something God couldn't do at creation. You know, everybody always likes these little, little riddles. What's the one thing God can't do? You know, whatever. Um, there was something God couldn't do at creation. He couldn't resurrect anyone. And death had to happen before resurrection could happen. And so when God wrapped himself up as man and came to the earth, it was to live what God had never lived. It was to actually be human and then suffer as a human and hurt 
as a human. And the only way to do it right was not to win as a human. It was to lose. Think about it. You know, we, we get disappointed and we, walk, and we get hurt. Jesus is going to the cross. We go, why didn't he win? Because we all lose. We all get crushed, man. At some point in your life, you get crushed. You get hurt. I mean, just because I haven't mourned the loss of a loved one doesn't mean I haven't been crushed or had my feelings hurt or wanted to quit or gotten cut down, made fun of, left out, abused, misused. Jesus had to go through that so that he would... So that all of us that have our hand raised when he goes, hey, who's hurting? And everybody raises their hand so that he could say, I got you. I know how you feel. I was left out too. I was stepped on. I was crushed. I was mocked. I was made fun of. I went through what you're going through and whatever I didn't go through in that advent, I go through now when you go through it because I'm ever present in you. So whatever pain you're going through, I'll stand right there and go through it with you. God doesn't step outside the room when you get abused. He steps inside the room when you are abused. So that what happens to you happens to him. So that he can take it into himself at Calvary. And then show you the possibility of a resurrected man. And the Old Testament prophesies of this in a chapter that doesn't get read in, in, in uh, Jewish prayer readings, by the way. They read the entire Torah, but they skip the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And... The reason is pretty obvious when you start to see who this character is. But I'm only going to read two verses to you. because It's long and it's amazing and we'll be there all night. So, but watch this. From Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. He is despised. He is rejected of men. He is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. There it is. So he knows your pain. He suffered it in one way or the other. And if he didn't suffer it in the natural, he suffered it at Calvary. That's what we mean by Jesus took it all into himself. He had to take into him what you took into you. We only think in sin terms a lot of times. Well, every, time, every sin you committed, Jesus had it put in his body. Okay, fine. That's easy. Every pain that happened to you. Okay, I don't mean it's easy, but sin, sinning's easy. Right? That ain't hard. Pain's hard. Sin's easy. Sin leads to a pain that's hard. So you could just put your sin in Jesus. You go, eh, whatever. Put your pain in Jesus. So that he has to hurt where you hurt. So that he has to grieve where you grieve. Then he's a man of sorrows. This has been troublesome for... This, this, that word grief has actually been troublesome for Christian scholars. Because the word is, is sicknesses. Which has led some sort of neo-scholars to say, was Jesus sick a lot? in his earthly life so that he would know what it meant to be sick. I'm not going to go down that road, but I just know that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with sicknesses. And maybe to the point that we hid, as it were, our faces from him because he was despised and we didn't esteem him. He wasn't that great to look at. What a text. It, didn't, it wouldn't help me if Jesus was the best looking man in the room because I've looked at me. It would help me if Jesus needed some help <laughs> in the room. You, you understand? But my point is that if he's acquainted with grief and he's acquainted with pain, sometimes we want to paint Jesus as if he almost floated above the crowd. 
like almost this untouchable Rambo figure who was also the best looking man in the room who had the sonoric voice that was doing Chevy voiceovers on the side, you know, and, and, and that somehow it, it was all sort of beneath him. Like he sort of laughs at the devil in the wilderness with his petty little temptations and all of his little problems. And it doesn't do any of us any good when that's the Jesus that we create. That's a golden calf, Jesus. Put him down in the mud and the muck and the mire. Make him ostracized and hated and disliked. And man, you're getting somewhere. And maybe ugly. I'm okay with that. Whatever it means, it means that he knows what you're going through. And he knows your pain and he knows your grief and he knows your sorrow. Verse 4. Surely. Surely. Because a man that close to hell would surely bear my griefs. And carry my sorrows. Surely a guy that looks like that knows what it means to hurt. Surely a guy that gets treated like that knows what it means to be left out. Surely he knows what it means to have pain. Surely he knows what it means to be misunderstood. Surely he knows what it means to not be able to open your heart to someone. Surely a guy that will be betrayed and left for dead by his own family and kicked out of his house and forgotten by his hometown. Surely that guy will know something about what it means to not be able to be honest with people or hide who you really are or just go through hell silently. Surely that man will know and he carried our sorrows and yet you know how we treated him? We figured that it was God killing him. We did esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So what we end up doing, and man, this is where our theology takes us a lot of times, is that God is so mad at your sin that he put his anger into Jesus. And yet it's not God turning on Jesus at the cross to go, I'm so mad at Matt, but I'll kill Jesus instead. It's us misunderstanding self-sacrifice. It's God laying his life down. And we don't get it because we can't imagine anybody would do that that had the power to keep it from happening. What kind of psycho would have the power from keeping it from happening and he would still let it happen? It just doesn't make sense. Nobody knows who they are and what belongs to them and the power they hold. And then they stand up and then kneel down with an apron on and wash people's feet. That's not how you handle figuring out that you're a king. And so it must be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted because it can't be that kind of self-sacrifice. And yet greater love has no man than this. And he would lay down his life for his friends. This is a love that John called out of this world. A love from another dimension. A love from another place. So, juxtapose two thoughts. The best earth can offer for your mourning is one of my favorite Jeffersonian quotes. What we have found in times such as these are that the only remedies are time and silence. It's that beautiful thought that if someone hurts and dies, the best thing we can do is time and silence. It's not a bad idea. It's the best the world can give you. It's the best that planet Earth has to offer. Are you hurting? Take some time. Be real quiet. Not bad advice. Take some time. Live in silence for a while. Keep some things. Mull some things. Let some things happen. But heaven has its own offer, and its offer is Jesus. Everything Jesus encountered, everything Jesus endured, everything Jesus paid for. I say take the best earth has to offer and marry it to the best heaven has to offer. Take your time and your silence and spend your silent time with the Jesus who went through hell for you, who suffered and who endured the shame 
me give you a couple of verses. Uh, Brian shared this one with me last week, and, and it blessed me. I wanted to share it with you. Psalm 34, 18. Jehovah, that's the Lord. Covenant God is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Those of you who have been shattered and broken, good news, he is close to you. Here's another one from Psalms. Psalms chapter 30, verse 5, God's anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Shame on you if you use this verse as a proof text that God is mad. Okay? That's what we do. We go look through our concordance and we find God's anger verses, and that's we pile them up. So we're going, oh, I need my God's angry verses. I, I can't tell you how, th- that's the moment where, where you're using the whetstone to sharpen the word and cut it, to cut someone. Because this text is not a proof text on the anger of God. This is a proof text on the temporal nature of the anger of God. Because watch the comparison. His anger is just for a moment. His favor is for life. You want to know what you see? His anger. You want to know what you get? His favor. So flip that sermon. Flip that lesson. Flip that understanding of God's anger. Weeping might last for the nighttime, but joy shows up in the morning. There is another one. You watch those two set side by side, sort of back to back. This is my opinion on that. God's wrath is a snapshot. God's favor is a movie. By comparison, weeping, mourning, pain, they're just a snapshot of a moment in your life. They are not your life. They are something that happened to you. Joy is the movie. And I don't mean happiness. I think happiness is fickle. I think you can do better than happiness. People say, I just want to be happy. You haven't thought that through. Happiness is just the end of a work week. You know what I mean? It's like it's going to roll right back around to where you spin that up. It's not worth chasing your entire life after happiness. Happy won't get you out of bed and send you to work. Happy won't get you through pain and cancer and surgery and bankruptcy and prison. Meaning will, or at least it might. Happy's fickle. Joy. It's something that's planted in you, something that happens beyond your circumstances, something that's bright when the darkest night occurs, something more permanent in the midst of a temporal world of mourning. So if anger is just a snapshot of God and you don't want a God that can't get wrath, we think we do, but it's because we don't understand the value of wrath. You want a God that knows how to have wrath over the things he loves. You want a dad that's able to get mad in your defense. Don't consider yourself a better father than God. Oh, I know how to get mad when I need to. God doesn't, but I do. And we actually feel good about that. God knows God's, but God's wrath is, is always defined within God's love. It can't be defined outside of God's love. The Bible doesn't say God is wrath. The Bible says God is love. But does God have wrath? Absolutely. It's an emotion that you are able to display and that you are meant to be responsible for. Back to Jonah. 
God shows up in Jonah 4, been writing this today all week, and God walks up to Jonah and goes, are you right to be angry? And you go, you're supposed to own your wrath. It's the reason God asks. It's the same question he asked Cain. God loves to ask people that question. Hey, why are you mad? Are you right to be mad? I'm not asking because I don't know. I'm asking because I'm not sure if you do. And so what are you going to do with this anger? And you can be angry and sin not. You can be angry and flip a table, but you better own what you do because it's you that did it. And so God owns his wrath in that he showers you with his love, his grace, and his mercy, and his wrath is a chastisement that simply burns off the chaff in your life. Bring it on, God. Bring on your wrath because I trust you're a good, good father. Walk me into the furnace and burn everything in me that doesn't need to be there because I trust your love. Therefore, I respect your wrath. If I didn't trust your love and all I saw was wrath, I would think wrath is the movie. Love was the snapshot. Love's, and I used to think that. Love's the snapshot that happens when you get saved. But deep down, God's ticked off. <laughs> and so, just as God's wrath is for a moment, but His favor is forever, mourning is for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I put the sun also rises. It's a great book by Ernest Hemingway, but it's also from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where he is just trying to show you that he even used, that's where we get this statement that the world will never end from Ecclesiastes 1. But he says, the sun goes down, but guess what? It also rises. It's one of those just simple little principles that basically says, hey, I know it seems like it's been dark a long time, but every time it gets dark, the sun comes back up. So don't forget, the sun rises. Don't forget, your weeping only lasts for the night. Joy comes in the morning. There is another side, all right? I want to give you an, a, an epistle version of the Beatitudes, all right? I got just a couple more texts. An epistle version of the Beatitudes from the Apostle Paul. We can blast through most of this. It's going to sound very much like the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost Paul repeating Jesus, almost, and then dropping in this beautiful little chestnut right at the end, Romans, Romans 12, 9. Just, just let this kind of sound like the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's where Paul's coming from. Not that he had heard it, not that he had read it, but he knew the spirit of Jesus. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. That's good advice. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. We need, we need classes in that last line. Giving preference to one another. That, this is the kind of stuff leadership classes ought to cover in the church. They always cover like how to run budgets and how to hire marketing directors and how to run counseling sessions. And no one ever has a class on give preference to other people. You want to be a leader? And in fact, stop having leadership classes and start having servanthood classes. Because the Bible talks way more about servanthood than it does leadership. But everybody wants to be a leader and no one wants to wash feet. So you want to lead? Start being, giving preference to one another. All right? Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in your spirit, serving the Lord. There's the anti-lazy passage in grace. Rejoice in hope. Patient when you're in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distribute to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's all, That's all Sermon on the Mount stuff. It's just Paul giving you the, the updated version. And then this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So you didn't go through it. It's not your pain. So it's not your problem. Mm -mm. You signed up for this. You didn't go through it, but she did. You know her. 
you're going through it too. Oh, don't deceive yourself. You're not going through it like her, but you're going through it because you call yourself her neighbor, her brother, her friend. In that, you identify with that colony of heaven. You're part of that family. If you're part of that family, they rejoice, you rejoice. They weep, you weep. This is when we realize we've started to tap into the main vein of God's love when this starts to happen. So you say, I didn't go through it, but I know he's going through it. And there's something about watching him go through it that makes me feel like I'm going through it. Why is that? I'm not trying to make this about me. It's not about me. It doesn't have to be about me. What, would, what do I need to do in the middle of it? Oh, I don't know. Maybe continue steadfastly in prayer. And maybe they got needs and I should distribute. And maybe I should be given to hospitality. Stop cursing and start blessing. Because as I rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, I start to live this out. So the morning can be used as a lesson, finally, but not initially. Please hear this. When you're going through mourning, it's not a lesson when you're going through it. It's just the release of grief. But in the end, it could be a lesson. When we're in mourning, we don't need God's teaching you something. Or He chose you because you're strong. Or everything happens for a reason. Just remove these from your vocabulary when you're helping people through their mourning. Just mourn with them. Just mourn with them. Don't give them platitudes that are stupid. Because they are in the moment, they're, don't, they're not valuable because you're not respecting my mourning. And if you don't respect my mourning, why should I listen to your advice? Because you don't care about my pain. You just want to be the guy that swoops in with a wisdom nugget. So that maybe when I tell my testimony, it'll be, oh, and then brother so-and-so walked in and said, you know, and that changed my life. You know, instead, just cry with them a little bit. Just hurt with them a little bit. Just feel what they feel a little bit. And from that place, from that place, as they let that happen, as the therapy happens, which is actually a word closely derived from the Greek in the book of Revelation, as the therapy occurs that as they weep, well then, time redeemed. When you can take your mourning and you can allow Christ's comfort to teach you how to comfort other people. The time will be redeemed. There'll be a time when you can look back on the morning and go, okay, God didn't do it to me. God didn't make it happen to me. But I'm not going to let it go to waste. And here's Paul's answer to that. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all your comfort. He comforts you in your tribulation that you may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which you yourselves were comforted by God. So he comforts you so that you can use the comfort to comfort someone else. So in the end game, yes, what you go through will become valuable, like medicine to other people. Almost like you got the disease and now you got the antibody. And so it's not a prevention antibody, but it's a cure. I can help but only because I've gone through what you go through, only because I've experienced the pain. This is why it's so important to see Jesus in this way. And we can see Jesus in this way in his natural life. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus because it hurt. We really try to spiritualize the Jesus at Lazarus part and go, oh, he's weeping because they all doubt. I think it has something to do with it. I, I mean, I do, but I think he's just hurt. That's what happens when your friend dies. Yeah. You cry, you know? Somebody that matters to you, you cry. You know, even Jesus, especially Jesus. Man, when you're acquainted with grief and sorrow, 
and your crowds are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and there's not very many people left, and your own family's even kind of stepped out on you, you lose one of the two or three you got left, it's getting pretty dark. I mean, Jesus brings him back, but he weeps at the tomb. Comes into Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps because he said, you did not know the things that made for your peace. If you would have accepted me, you could have had this at any time. And if you see Jesus as the consummate judge, he ought to laugh when he comes into Jerusalem. He ought to walk into Jerusalem and go, ha, 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 you're about to get yours. You don't know what this cross is. I know what this cross is. I'm going to win. You and the devil think you got me, but I'm going to win. But he doesn't. He walks into Jerusalem crying his eyes out. And maybe a little bit of it is, they're going to kill me. My own people are going to kill me. I mean, I grew up with these kids. I didn't do anything to them. And they're all going to kill Maybe there's a little bit of that. There's also a little bit of the pain of that was my father's house. And they've made it to den of thieves. And they don't want it anymore. And you know what? I know deep down it needs to come down. Tear this thing down. In three days, I'll build it again. And John said he didn't speak of a temple. He spoke of his body. And you know what he was talking about? His body, the church. He goes, the only way my church can be born is if we die to the old Adam so we can be raised to the new one. But you know what? That ain't fun going down. That hurts. And so Jesus wept. And someone brought him a little telegram that his cousin had had his head cut off in Herod's palace. John the Baptist has died. They decapitated him. It was Jesus' only ministry friend. He had one preacher friend. One guy that knew what it was like. One guy. And he lost him. And the Bible says Jesus went off into a mountain to be by himself and to pray. You don't want to know why he wanted to go be alone? Because he just lost his buddy. And you need to cry a little bit. And the Bible says, and the crowd found out that he was there. And so they came to see him. And Jesus turned and saw the crowd and was moved with compassion and began to heal their sick. <laughs> you go, only a man acquainted with sorrow would turn around and heal people in sorrow because he knows what they're going through. And that leads to the feeding of the 5,000. Hey, send them, go get some food. We don't have food. Buy food. We can't buy food. All right, watch a miracle. And he intervenes. And he does it not from a place of pity because pity is, is, pity is indifference masked as compassion. Pity is selfishness. Pity is I want to feel bad, so I feel something. Compassion is I will do something when it can be done. And so let's land where the sun comes up, shall we? Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. You know my Thoughts on that? I'll leave that alone. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You know why she's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband? Because what you're going to find later in the chapter is it is the bride of the husband. Here's the church. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. If you put this off in the future only, then you quit saying God lives in the church and you're the body as the temple. This is, a, this is not a prophecy to come in 3,000 years. This is a prophecy that you're living in. You are that bride. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death or sorrow or crying. And there shall be no more pain because the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Look at that statement. Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. I remember, um, you remember the passion of the Christ, that Jim Caviezel movie where he gets shredded. I mean, they just shred his back and there's blood and flesh hanging and it's, he's playing Jesus on his way to the cross. Uh, you remember that scene where he's on his way to the cross coming up the Via Della Rosa and, the, and he falls beneath the way of the cross. And I remember crying in the theater on this one scene where he, he falls and he looks over at the woman and the woman's weeping and screaming to take this cross off of him. Then he looks over and he says, behold, I make all things new and then stands back up and carries his cross up the hill. Um, he can't make all things new if he doesn't go up that hill and die. But when he goes up that hill to die, he makes all things new. And right for these words are true and faithful. These words are true and these words are faithful. He is the one who will wipe all tears from our eyes, who will take care of our mourning. And if you need this realized in your future, know that this is there. If you, as you have revelations of who he is, this can be realized in your present. As much as you are the temple, this can be realized in your present. But here's what you need to know. He's the one that makes all things new. Why can he say blissful are those who mourn? Because he's the comforter and he brings them comfort. I had to wrap my spirit around permission from the Holy Spirit to teach this lesson. Um, and once that happened, then the Father could open up a lot of things to say. I hope that we've been able to say them in a way that maybe it needed to be done that way so that you leave with thinking about nothing but Jesus. It's not some story I give you about how I overcame something. It's just, here's what Jesus can do. Let's let him do it. Let's pray. And I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for the, the viewer and the listeners that will... Somebody's going to come click on this someday that's mourning. They just need that simple title that says, Blessed are those who mourn. You know, I need to hear something in the middle of my mourning. Father, it's for that soul that your word is most true. It just means that it's true for all of us, but it's most true for the person who walks up to the table of your goodness and they lay all their baggage down. And they say, here's all my hurts and my pains and my problems and I'm crying and I'm mourning and maybe they're ready to die. Maybe they are like Jonah. They say, I'd rather you kill me than me live in this world. Well, Father, may they see Jesus then. I hope that's what we've done. Put the spotlight on Jesus so that you become the centerpiece, so that you comfort all of us who are mourning, who have mourned, who will mourn. Christianity is not a promise that we will not mourn. It is just a guarantee that the Comforter will never leave us nor forsake us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.